I'm Pete Pedro Hoffmeister, and this is the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. On deck for episode three, we have one, Trump fans hating my writing, two, the story of the world's dirtiest chair, three, Per listener request, I break down pop rap lyrics in a taiga song. Four, geeking out with bats. Five, el mejor fin de semana. Y seis, a dedication and a message from my neighborhood male woman. Winter of late 2015, I had an idea for a fictional story. There was this odd outlier Republican candidate for the presidency, a reality show character from The Apprentice, who was running for a political party that he didn't identify with. For a decade, he told people in interviews that he identified as more of a Democrat. So at that point in time, I thought he would be someone like Ross Perot, a really strange candidate who would end up being the answer to an obscure, trivial pursuit question or, you know, something like, what real estate mogul and reality television star switched to the Republican Party and ran unsuccessfully in the 2016 presidential election? Obviously, looking back, I was incredibly wrong. But to get back to my story, a fictional story that I made up, I thought I would write a funny romance scene between Donald Trump and, and I I wasn't really sure. I tried to think of another celebrity who wouldn't be caught dead with him. So naturally I chose Selena Gomez. There was the age difference, the appearance difference, and Trump had already made many, many anti-Mexican and anti-Mexican-American statements in 2015. He was already hated by a huge portion of the population for racist remarks, another reason that I incorrectly thought he would quickly lose his election bid. So in my fictional story, I had this young speechwriter who hated writing speeches for Trump because Trump never followed the script. See, in the political writing community, that fact was already known by the winter of 2015, that Trump does not follow a script well. So, anyway, this speechwriter is hiding in a stockroom, stressing out about the next speech he has to write and how Trump is going to mangle it. He's hiding when the speechwriter accidentally observes a tryst between Selena Gomez and Donald Trump. A shocking and kind of weird, not that gross, just funny scene. The speechwriter later writes up the story of what he observed after a leaked TMZ video, etc. My story, to be honest, was stupid. It was fun for me to write, but it wasn't even worthy of publication. I just wrote it because I sometimes like to write stupid ideas that pop into my brain. So, I didn't try to publish this story. I just put it on my website as something ridiculous and categorized it under fiction. 
but I discovered that some people don't know what the word fiction means, and I got both hate mail and hate comments. Here's one of my favorites. A woman named Teresa Clements wrote this to me in early July 2016, just before Trump won the Republican nomination. Since my podcast is not explicit, I'll have to use contractions and letters to represent Miss Clements' more adult word selections, which will be a little confusing since she also uses contractions herself, and misspells, and misuses words. I'll also try to raise my voice a little bit for all caps, too. Clements wrote to me, You're effing crazy. No way in H are you telling the truth, you P-O-S. Is obvious you have a grudge against Trump and a unhealthy attraction to Selena. So where are your facts? The video? Grainy video? You didn't write a damn think for him. Your third grade education against a genius. LMFAO all D day. Explain why this isn't the news. The only news on all networks. It's BC, you're a liar. And trying to ruin Trump. BC, maybe he fired your lying A. And this is payback. You don't know and don't want to mess with his followers when you tell lies. If someone tells the truth, we accept it, but don't F with the Donald. After I moved out of my best friend's mom's house when I was 18, my best friend Mike and I got an apartment near the University of Oregon campus. All the students were gone for the summer, and it was June, and Mike and I had made a lot of money through illicit means. So we decided to pay for the apartment up front, June, July, and August rent and utilities. So we walked into the manager's office with $1,500 in small bills. And the way she looked at the money, I realized our mistake pretty quickly. And I looked at her and said, I'm a stripper? So then we went to Safeway and got a certified check, put it down for the apartment. The only thing was, we didn't have any furniture. So we hauled two bare mattresses over there from Mike's mom's house. One mattress went in the bedroom, and the other mattress went in the living room. So it could double as my bed, but also the couch. After that, we skateboarded a television over and hooked it up to the free cable. So we had a couch and a TV. But there was kind of an awkward angle with the mattress up against the wall. So it was really only a couch, a lay-down couch for one person. We needed something else to sit on or lay on in the living room while watching our free cable. We were quality human beings. We walked around the U of O campus until we found this crisscross polyester tweed brown and orange 
kind of barco lounger like chair in front of a fraternity with the free sign on it. The chair was pretty dirty, old, at least 20 years old. It had some dark stains on it, but smelled sort of okay. So the two of us carried it three blocks back to our apartment and put it in our new TV living room where we already had a mattress couch. So we had the chair, the mattress couch, and a television, and we were ready to do absolutely nothing for a good chunk of the summer. I mean, I read a lot of books, went for some runs and lifted weights every day. We didn't do a lot. We didn't have a lot in our apartment. We had our product, obviously, some food, sawed-off shotgun on top of a television, loaded always. We didn't have much, but we had that chair. And even though it was dirty and old and kind of disgusting, we argued over it. Who would get to sit in the chair directly in front of the television in the evening? And who would lay awkwardly on the floor mattress? So we would kind of go back and forth. We were egalitarians that way, trading off, sweating into the chair, Neither of us showered a lot that summer, and like I said, I worked out often, so the chair got a lot of human oils, a lot of sweat on it, so it was pretty disgusting. In June, got more disgusting in July, and by the end of August, that chair was absolutely vile. I was headed to the University of Oregon to wrestle on their wrestling team, and Mike was moving back in with his mom during the more expensive school year. So neither of us were going to take that chair with us in September. And we had to move out by the end of the month. And the chair was pretty gross. So I looked at Mike, and he looked at me, and we didn't know what we should do with it. And finally I said, I guess we could just burn it. Mike nodded, so we carried it together out into the alleyway. And I got a box of matches. And I started just flicking matches onto the seat of the chair, right onto the cushion, where it was really oily and disgusting and stained. And the first couple of matches landed there and just sort of burned just the wood of the matches. That's it. So I kept flicking a couple more matches, and then all of a sudden, the cushion on the chair took off. And then the back of the chair took off. And then I guess all the human oils from all the frat boys and from Mike and me all added together to make a really flammable concoction. And this chair just kind of exploded. I mean, it just went boom and became like, you know, three feet wide, six foot tall ball of flame. And I hadn't really noticed how close we'd put the chair to the wall of the apartment building. We were in the alley, and pretty soon that wall took off too. And the flames just carried up to the roof line. And Mike and I stood there like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? <laughs> and this whole wall's exploding in flame, and I said, run back into the apartment, let's go, let's go, and we just bolted back around the corner in the alley, 
into the breezeway through our sliding glass door. Mike ducked in behind me, and I closed the sliding glass door, and I lay down on the bed, and Mike sat down against the wall, and uh, we just watched TV for a minute, then two minutes. Just trying to play it cool. We're trying to play it cool. Just trying to stay relaxed. Trying to stay relaxed. And then all of a sudden, we hear, Fire! Fire! And we jump up, pop open the sliding glass door, run into the breezeway. Everybody's coming out of their apartments. There's smoke. We all sprint with our neighbors around the corner to see the chair and the whole side of the building on fire up to the roof line and people are calling 911. And Mike and I are like, oh my gosh, who did this? For our third segment today, per request, of a listener named Noah Hardy. I'm gonna break down the first stanza of the artist Tyga's rap single, Rack City. Now I get why Noah was asking me to uh, explain these lyrics to him. Normally a person can just hop onto Rap Genius, put in the song, look up the lyrics and understand what's going on. But with Rack City, Rap Genius is incorrect from the very start. For example, Genius says, Rack City is a nickname for Las Vegas, the city of racks. And yes, that's sort of true. Some people call it that. But if you know anything about Tyga, he's not from Las Vegas. He's from California, Compton to be exact. And Compton is not Rack City. Also... If you watch the video, none of it is filmed in Las Vegas. It doesn't look like Las Vegas. There's no Las Vegas architecture in the background like there would be in a rap song that's referencing Las Vegas. So with Rap Genius incorrect right from the start, we have to go to the lyrics and examine what they could actually mean. So I'm going to read the lyrics of this first stanza of our poem aloud. Rack City B, Rack Rack City B, 10, 10, 10, 20 on your T's B, 100 deep VIP, no guest list. T raw, you don't know who you effing with. Got my other B effing with my other B. Effing all night and we ain't celibate and say I'm too dope, I ain't selling it. Raw fresher than a MF peppermint. Gold letterman's last king killing S. Yeah, young money, young money, yeah, we getting rich. Got your grandma on my D. Ha ha. Girl, you know what it is. Mmm, mmm, we got some good stuff there. Good stuff, Tyga. So let's see what to make of these lyrics. 
interpreting Tyga's poetry. Rack City B, Rack Rack City B. Um, so we know that could be Las Vegas. It could also be a place with lots of women. Rack City uh, could be a club, could be a strip club. And the next line, 10, 10, 10, 20 on your TTs B. Well, if we're putting 10, 10, 10, and 20 on that part of uh, Woman's Anatomy, it does sound like a strip club. Some kind of club, definitely. So, the next line, 100 deep, VIP, no guest list. We can see that this certain club that he is alluding to is 100 deep, the line, with very important people. Yet, there's no guest list. So, it's just Tyga inside. And uh, in the video, there's also Black China. So, Tyga and Black China are kind of doing their uh, exclusive club thing while all the VIPs wait outside. In the next line, T. Raw is referenced. He doesn't know who he's effing with. T. Raw usually means T. Pain uh, of auto tune fame. But I could not find any reference to. T-Pain and Tyga having some kind of beef. In fact, T-Pain was featured with Tyga on uh, Solo in 2012, so I don't know what's going on there, but apparently T-Raw said something to Tyga, and Tyga felt like he needed to include T-Raw in his poetry for at least this song. So we go on to the next line. Got my other B effing with my other B. Um... Okay, uh, so in this line, we have two human females, and they're not his primary human female, um, but he has a relationship with both other human females, and they're effing with each other, which could be like um, physical fighting, or could be more sexually inclined, we're not sure, but if we look at the next line, effing all night, and we ain't celibate, uh, that line certainly seems to indicate that the human females, his secondary human females, are engaging in sexual acts together. Then we go back to Tyga himself, because he says, ends, say I'm too dope, I ain't selling it, so... He is the embodiment of dope. He doesn't need to sell it to be this actualization of too dope. Um, then we've got a line here, raw, fresher than a mother effing peppermint. In the video, he's sucking on a peppermint. It's actually a candy cane, a thick candy cane uh, that Tiger's sucking on. So his breath is seemingly getting fresher until, of course, the sugar turns into bacteria between his teeth, and then his breath will get less fresh. But he's not actually talking about breath, even though he's literally sucking on a peppermint in the video. He's talking about how fresh he is, um, which is obviously fresher than a mother effing peppermint. And then Gold Letterman's Last King, Killing S, um, he's varsity in this game, he's varsity in the rap game, and he's so varsity 
that his letterman jacket is made of gold. And just in case you weren't clear about that, he is the king, and not only the king, but the last king. So he's the one that everyone's going to remember because there are going to be no kings after him killing us. Uh, then the third to last line, young money, young money, yeah, we getting rich. Uh, young money is a common reference to Lil Wayne. Um, so he and Lil Wayne, since he's on Lil Wayne's, uh, Lil Wayne's label, they're making money together. And finally, got your grandma on my D, ha ha, girl, you know what it is. So every female going back two generations is into Tyga because that's how Tyga's D is oriented. Let's see, our geeking out segment is going to be all about bats, the winged night creature. So let's begin with a few bat facts. Bats are flying mammals. And while a few other mammals can glide, bats can actually fly. They are mammals with wings. So it's like you're seeing a flying carnivorous mouse. Other bat facts. There are more than 1,000 species of bats. They're primarily nocturnal. Most feed on insects, although a few species feed on fruit, fish, or even blood. And speaking of blood-eating bats, there are three species of vampire bats, all three with such small and razor-sharp teeth that I read they're able to pierce the skin of an animal or a human without the animal knowing that it's being bitten. I didn't believe that, but then I researched more and found out that vampire bats primarily feed on sleeping animals. Cows, pigs, deer, whatever. And the puncture of vampire bats' tiny teeth doesn't generally wake the animal up. So that's kind of interesting. Or scary, depending on where you're sleeping. The largest bat species are the teropus bats, also known as flying foxes or fruit bats. And those bats can have wingspans of up to six feet wide. On the other hand, the smallest bats in the world are the bumblebee bats, weighing only two grams, and those bats hold the title of smallest mammals on Earth. I also discovered that bats have two different flight patterns. When they travel during the night, or sometimes even in the day, they fly in a straight line. But when they hunt, they swoop and soar, cut and dive, chasing after prey and often reaching speeds of 60 miles per hour. In fact, the Mexican freetail bat is the fastest mammal on Earth. It can reach flying speeds of 100 miles per hour while hunting. And speaking of hunting, probably the most commonly known thing about bats is that they use echolocation to locate their prey. This basically means that bats hear the way humans see. The sound waves coming back to bats give them a mental map of their surroundings in the dark. But I didn't know a few things about their echolocation. For example, bats emit 10 to 20 beeps per second, 
mapping their surroundings and prey patterns. And these high-speed, high-pitched sounds allow them to eat their body weight in bugs in one evening. This would be like me, Pedro, running around all evening while catching and consuming 157 pounds of meat. To give you a specific statistic, when a bat's prey is mosquitoes, an average bat will eat 1,200 mosquitoes each hour. So 10 neighborhood bats can pick off 12,000 neighborhood mosquitoes in a single hour. There are two types of echolocation calls, low duty and high duty. When a bat uses low duty, it spaces its calls and contracts its middle ear muscles so its calls don't hurt its own ears. When a bat's using high duty calling, it's then sending and receiving on two different frequencies so it can continuously call and continuously listen. Bats use ultrasonic sound at a frequency of 20 to 200 kilohertz. Humans can't hear above 20 kilohertz. That's why we don't hear all these continual bat calls in the evening. Also, bats' ultrasound is usually in the 50 to 120 decibel range. Even though we can't hear it, above 120 decibels could damage human ears. In fact, above 155 decibels would cause heat levels that could be damaging to the human body. So in that way, with bats staying under 120 decibels, humans and bats are symbiotic. Bats eat bugs that aim to feast on our blood, and bats' sound emissions remain just under our ear-damaging thresholds. I got interested in bats because of an essay I read by Lewis Thomas called Bats, Crickets, Cats, and Chaos in Best American Essays, 1993. Bats and crickets have an interesting relationship. 53 million years ago, bats used only sight to locate their prey. Then they adapted and began using echolocation so they could thrive as hunters. Crickets are a common bat prey, and they too have adapted. The modern field cricket has four acoustic inputs on their tibiae. So, basically, they have ears on their legs. These acoustic inputs lead to chambers that allow sound to pass completely through the cricket. So crickets then know which direction a bat's sound is coming from. Tying this to bats, if a bat's click is far enough away, say 10 meters, a flying cricket will then engage in a veer going right or left or down in a straight flight pattern. But if a bat's echolocation call is close, say 1 or 2 meters, the cricket will engage in a flight pattern that is titled by scientists as chaos. The interesting thing about these patterns of chaos when analyzed by mathematicians is that a large data set of chaos flight patterns added up, all make a sort of logical grouping pattern with even distribution. Crickets will fill in a clear pattern with their chaos. To liken that to baseball and the other kind of bats, this pattern might look like an Ichiro Suzuki hitting chart at the end of his career. Now if you change the animal set and think of something overly populated like Midtown Manhattan, and humans then representing our crickets in their chaos flight patterns, a large data set of video from above shows similar daily movement patterns in Midtown, all of that chaos as a single data set. 
but what might be thought of by us as a series of, say, millions of individual humans making billions of individual choices can actually be seen as a very clear and repetitive data pattern with both predictable and logical distributions. So as humans, we might think that we have and act on free will, but as a whole, we're very similar to crickets in our patterns of chaos. We're simply filling in the pattern with our data, and that inaudible clicking all around you is the echolocation calls of everything you are unable to hear, everything waiting for you in the dark. Segmento 5, El Mejor Fin de Semana. People play up the idea of a vacation, going somewhere cool where you can ostensibly do a few awesome activities, but I'm here advocating for a regular and often staycation full of your favorite in-town activities and meals. As an example, I'll use my last weekend where all but the food was free. On Friday night, I went home after work and ate a delicious spaghetti, garlic bread, and broccoli meal with Jenny and Rue while watching an episode of the TV show Good Girls. Then I went indoor climbing for two hours at a state-of-the-art bouldering gym, Elevation in Eugene, with Rain and Ben, and we absolutely wrecked ourselves on the overhanging routes in the cave. After that, I returned home and read in a bath until I got tired. Then I went to my comfortable bed and fell asleep. On Saturday, I woke up early, drank good dark coffee that I brewed myself, exactly the way I like it, then wrote poetry for two hours at my writing desk by the big window, where I can watch California scrub jays dip in and out of the yard if I get stuck during a poem. After that, I set a chair out in the sun and read for another hour. Then I biked down to the rock columns and did some outdoor crack climbing again in the sun. And after biking home and eating a brunch with Jenny, I went to the river with Rue during a sudden winter afternoon storm, hiked into a riverside beach we love, and did a polar bear swim in the frigid January water while it rained hard on us. Then she and I drove to an Italian pizza by the slice restaurant to get ourselves warm again and chow pizza before heading home. Later that night, I watched a Blazers basketball game while eating a truly delicious grilled cheese sandwich that had both sharp and regular Tillamook cheddar on it with the side of an organic carrot. Then I read in bed and went to sleep again. On Sunday, I got up early and worked on a story I was writing. Then I spent another hour reading a good novel in the morning sunshine outside, but this time it was so warm that I was shirtless, just soaking up the rays as the garage door behind me refracted heat. Then Jenny, Rue, and I went for a barefoot bike ride on cruisers, like we were beach bums, before we all had to do some homework and housework to get ready for the week. I did a weightlifting circuit after that, then read aloud to Rue from To Kill a Mockingbird, one of my favorite books, and then the weekend was over. I could have paid a lot of money to go somewhere cool and to do fun things, but then again, all I paid for last weekend was a little bit of food 
and the weekend was not a bad weekend. This episode is dedicated to my small family, Jenny, Rain, and Rue, my favorite weekend friends, the people who put up with all my adventures, all of my injuries, all of my too strong opinions, and all of my annoying idiosyncrasies. And, finally, I have to pass a message along. While I was recording this podcast, my neighborhood male woman, Janice, delivered a package to my front door. She turned to leave, then stopped and said, Pedro Cito. Can you ask your listeners to each recommend your podcast to one other person? It's important to me. So, dear listeners, please make Janice happy and encourage somebody else to subscribe to the Boring is a Swear Word podcast. And my...